Cornerstone Bible Fellowship's online sermons. Join us each week as we dig into the truths of God's Word. You can find our sermons online at cbf.us slash sermons. We'd love to have you join us for a worship service this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. at our campus at 7351 Warden Road in Sherwood, Arkansas. Now, let's listen to this week's sermon. As we reach the end of John chapter 2, we kind of reach the end of what I would say is the introduction that John provides his readers. When we get to next week, John chapter 3, we see that a guy is introduced by the name of Nicodemus in one of the most famous passages of Scripture, John chapter 3, which includes the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16. And it really gets into the, the deep teachings of Jesus beginning in John 3. But here John 1 and John 2 is kind of the introduction. In the very beginning of John, he had the great prologue, which is, you know, in the beginning was the word. We learned all about the logos. He talked about John the Baptist and how John the Baptist paved the way for Jesus Christ. He went out into the wilderness and spoke. And then when Jesus came, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he began to lose. John the Baptist lost his disciples as they began to go to Jesus. We saw Jesus call his first disciples. And he began to build a following, and he went to a a wedding. We saw this last week, and he performed his first miracle where he changed water to wine. And John, the writer of this gospel, is introducing us to who Jesus really is. And as we get to the last verses here of chapter 2, it's this final part of this introduction. And it's entitled in mine, I don't know if you have the little headings, probably you do. Mine says, Jesus cleanses the temple. That's a polite way of saying he goes and takes out some people when he does this you know he does that's a way to clean things up but this is also one of the most discussed and talked about passages of scripture because in the gospel of john this appears right here at the very beginning jesus cleans out the temple and matthew mark and luke those gospels also contain an account of jesus cleansing the temple Except in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's during the Holy Week. It's the last week before Jesus is crucified where this takes place. So if you're thinking of this week, I believe it's either Tuesday or Wednesday that he does this. But here in John, it's right here at the very beginning, which has led for 2,000 years people to debate, did this happen twice? Or did John just include his account at the the beginning? And, And he doesn't really, it's not necessarily trying to get everything in order. And you can, depending on who you read or look at, you will find about 50% think it happened twice. Another 50% of the people think it only happened one time. And I will tell you, I think it probably could have happened twice. Uh, It's not like people back then or people today always get it the first time. I mean, Jesus does this one time. Two years later, he shows up, and there they are doing it again. It reminds me of the pastor that preached the same service, same sermon two weeks in a row. And he was about halfway through the second week doing the same sermon when some guy finally said, Preacher, I think you got your notes mixed up. This is the one you preached last week. And he said, Well, yeah, no, I know that. I just figured since nobody listened and did anything I said, I'll just keep going until they do. So maybe it was two times, maybe it was once. But that's not really the the essence of what this is all about. It's, It's John as he is recording about Jesus and introducing the reader to who he is. This last little section contains a little bit more about his Messiahship. 
It contains more about Jesus, who he is. He's just this guy who was a carpenter. All of a sudden, John the Baptist starts talking about him. He performs this miracle. He's building up these followers, and then we're going to get into his teaching. And so John has this one final account of, of Jesus demonstrating his messiahship. And these last verses, verses 13 through 25, kind of it's one account of cleaning out the temple. And then 23, 24, and 25 are kind of what are called a transitionary section. It, it kind of transitions to chapter 3. But we'll see three things in this passage. I'm going to ask you in the honor of God's word to stand with us this morning or stand with me this morning. As I read John chapter 2 beginning in verse 13 through the end of the chapter. It says, The Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name, and they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Lord, I thank you for the reading of your word. Lord, I thank you for what it teaches us. Lord, I thank you for the honor of being able to preach your word. I pray today that as we leave here in a few moments, that your word changes us and we know you even more. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. Right off the top, when we read the opening of this, we see that Jesus demonstrates his messiahship through his passion for worship. We just had a great worship service. We call it that. We, we, we sang and singing can be a part of worship, but it's the entirety of coming to God and the way God instructs us to come to him, to worship him, to give him the honor that he is due. And Jesus shows up and says the Passover of the Jews was at hand. He shows up in Jerusalem to the big holiday that they had. It'd be like Christmas for our culture. This was the main one. They had lots of festivals, but Passover was the big one. And Jesus shows up, and part of what went on with Passover is every adult male Jewish person was to go to the temple to pay what was called the temple tax. The temple tax was an amount of money, a half shekel, that was used to fund the temple and everything that went on in the temple throughout the year. This was, it's prescribed in the book of Exodus. It is part of the Jewish way of worshiping God. And so they would come, sometimes some estimates, hundreds of thousands of people would come to to the Passover for this event. And they would go in there and they would change, they had to change their money over. In other words, at the time, the Romans were leading, they were over Israel. They were over much of the world at this point. And so people had coins, but a lot of the coins were in whatever area of the country they were from. So Jews that were coming from other places, even some of the Jews in Jerusalem would have Roman coins. 
and you could not use those because they were unclean. And so you would have to exchange your money in order to get the right kind of money to pay this temple tax. And it was a half shekel. I think I mentioned that. A half shekel is about a day, a day and a half's wages. It wasn't a huge, huge sum of money, but it wasn't chump change. I mean, I don't know what you get paid in a day, but that plus some. And so they would show up and they would have to change over their money. Well, the money changers would rip them off. I mean, that's in essence, they were allowed by Talmud law to charge a little bit of extra money to kind of pay their expenses, but they weren't supposed to charge an exorbitant fee. When I was in college, I used to go to Canada. I went to college in New York State, and we would go over to Niagara Falls. And if you made the mistake of forgetting to change your money at a bank in New York, and you would go over to Canada, they would rip you off all the time. You give them an American dollar, and American dollars, were, at least then, were worth a lot more than Canadian dollars, and they would always give you change back in their goofy little they had ducks on everything. Everything you get from Canada is a duck or a woodchuck. You're like, what is this? But they would give you this money back. And then when you'd cross back over, you would, you know, get your money back. And you would always end up in, in behind. And that's what would happen here. They would go and exchange their money and they would get ripped off. In addition to that, you had to sacrifice animals. That's what the pigeons and the lambs and the oxen were for. Now, you could theoretically bring your own animal. But if you brought your own animal, it had to be inspected. Because any animal that would be offered as a sacrifice had to be without blemish. It couldn't have anything wrong with it, any defect. And so inevitably, if you brought your own animal in, the, the temple inspectors would find something wrong with it. There would be, you know, I don't know, this hair's out of place or whatever. They would find something wrong with your animal. And then they would say, but don't worry, right over here we have some perfect blemish-free animals for sale. They're charged about two to three times as much as the same animal just outside of the temple. And so the whole system had become a money making process. In addition to that, if John is recounting the same thing, it's possible that Matthew, Mark, and Luke were, were talking about. There's a detail that Mark includes that's also important to note. The temple was divided into four areas there was the outer court or the Gentile court, then there was a court for the women, then a court for the men, and a court for the priests. As you got closer and closer, it would change. But the outside was for the non-Jewish people, for them, if they felt called by God to come and worship. And this, according to Mark, was taking place in that outer court. It was in the temple complex. And so there they were, where the Gentiles and the non-Jews were supposed to try and worship. And the whole time they would hear the animals. They would be you know, making all the noises that they make. It would smell. There would be all of the money going on. Huge crowds of people. Preventing them from worshiping the way God called them to worship. And then in walks in Jesus. And you can almost sense it. He walks in. This is the temple that in the Old Testament was created to worship God. All sorts of rules and regulations about how it was supposed to take place. But this was the way they connected with God. And he walks in and he sees it become a joke. It's just a way to make money. And you can imagine, you know, his hands starting to flex a little bit and that face getting just angry. And his disciples looking at it probably going, well, ooh, something's up with Jesus. And we always, you see the pictures of Jesus. He's always got this, you know, the long brown hair with the pretty blue eyes. And he's just very slight of build. Jesus was a first century carpenter. When I was in high school, my parents had an addition put on the, the second story of our house. And the Amish did it. And the Amish don't use, they didn't use anything that had electricity. They didn't even use the phone. They hired a guy. His job was to drive him around and answer the phone. I did ask that guy, how can I get your job? Because that seems really cool. You just drive around. Yeah, sure. 
But they didn't use, I mean, so if there was something to cut, they just used a, a hammer, something to drill a hole in. They had this thing that they cranked around. I remember one time I was just kind of there, and they, they asked me to pick up some wood, and I'm like, you know, trying to get this thing up. And the guy reached over with one hand, just picked it up. You know, his arms were this big around because that's what they did. That's the way Jesus was. He was not some little guy, and he's mad. He's angry at the mockery of what had happened. And so what does he do? He reaches down and grabs a rope, probably there to keep the animals in line, and just starts going to town, chasing them out, flipping the tables over, taking the money and throwing it on the ground. doesn't tell us that anybody even tried to stop him because he was that enraged. Why? Well, his disciples figured it out. We see it in verse 17. They remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. It's from Psalm 69, 9. The second part of that verse, zeal for your house will consume me, says this. And the reproach of those who reproach you have fallen on me. David, who wrote that psalm, was saying he was so consumed and so passionate about God and worshiping God and, and doing the things the way God prescribed them to be done, that when people didn't do it, when they made a mockery of it or a joke, it enraged David so much that then they would, those people would turn their anger, their reproach onto him. And it's the same thing here. These people have made a mockery of worshiping God, and once Jesus did this, they, they turned their attention to him. They're mad at him, but he didn't care. That's how important doing things the way God called him to do it was. Now, as we apply this to our lives today, there's a couple, one quick thing at the very top. This particular passage sometimes is erroneously made to say, listen, you can't do a fundraiser at church because, you know, that's like selling things here or whatever. Well, no, first of all, this building is not the Old Testament temple. I know it's cool. It's a car dealership. It used to be, but it's not the Old Testament temple. Worship is different in the New Testament. As Jesus says in the next section when he talks about himself being the temple. The closest thing would be is if we charged a a fee to get in here to worship God. And then once we got in here, some of the people we didn't like, we made them stand over in the corner where the line was to get in. No, what we see here is is, is that this is about confronting the erroneous, putting down the worship of God and minimizing it and belittling it. And this is a theme throughout the New Testament. This isn't just Jesus doing this. In Romans chapter 16, verse 17, it says this. Paul, at the end of his letter, says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. Paul instructing the church to be aware of false doctrine that creeps in and to avoid those people. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we see an entire section where Paul writes to the church at Corinth and says, There is a man caught in a sin who refuses to repent. He's having, committing adultery with his stepmother. And he says, hand him over to Satan. I don't know how you would respond if I said this morning, I'm good. we're going to hand somebody over to Satan. But I do think I'd get some strange looks. But it's biblical, isn't it? 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6, Paul writes to the Thessalonian church, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. Keep away 
First Timothy, the entire first chapter, Paul writes to Timothy instructing him how to deal with those that are teaching false things in the church. At the end of the chapter, he calls out people by name, Alexander and Hermanus. He says they've destroyed their faith. They're going to destroy others. Take care of this. Third John, as John writes to the church, he talks about a man named Diotrephes. He says, I'm on my way to your church, and I'm going to confront this guy when I get there. Take time to read the book of Jude. It's the second to last book. It would take you two minutes to read it. And basically, the entire book is Jude writing, saying, listen, people have crept into the church. They're teaching false doctrine. The worship of God is being perverted, and we don't sit back and say, well, we don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. We don't want to make anyone feel uncomfortable. doesn't mean when we come to church and that we sit there and try and, and, and hunt people down or point people out, but it does mean that we hold the worship of God high. We hold what his word teaches us about him above hurting other people's feelings. Sometimes today we have this overabundance of of, of niceness that Jesus, he got angry because God was being belittled. And so we passionately protect the church. We passionately protect the doctrine. We passionately protect what Jesus did. It's how he shows his messiahship. It's how he shows who he really is. Well, of course, he gets a response for doing this. You know, flipping over tables and throwing the money around gets you in trouble. So verse 18, the Jews show up. This would be the temple police. And we see point two, Jesus demonstrates his messiahship through the promotion of the gospel. The cops show up. So he called, they call the cops, the cops show up, and they say, what sign do you show us for doing these things? It's interesting to me that they don't just arrest him or do something to him. It lets me know that there's probably a little bit in the back of their mind going, he's right in what he's doing. There's a little bit of that defensiveness of going, well, he's, 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 you know, we are doing some things we shouldn't do. And he kind of called us out on it. But they set that aside, and they ask him this question, what sign do you show us? And we see this is an important thing. We've already seen this in chapter 1 when they went to John the Baptist and asked him, who are, who are you? Are you the Christ? Are you Elijah the prophet? And this is important to the Jewish people. They're trying to figure out, they're looking for the Messiah. And so there is a question, is Jesus, what, what authority do you have to do this? And Jesus gives this very, at the time, cryptic answer. He's so cryptic that his disciples, it says there in verse 22, didn't figure it out until after he rises from the dead. He says, destroy the temple. Three days, I'll raise it up. Now, of course, they tell you it's been 46 years. Brief little history side note. There's, there were two temples. The first temple was created by Solomon. It was destroyed in 586 by the Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. It was a little while later. If you remember when I preached through Haggai, they rebuilt the temple. But it wasn't anything nearly as grand as the first one. And so Herod, a few years, about 15 years before Jesus was born, decided to renovate it. And it had been being renovated for 46 years. Don't hire them as your contractor. It was 46 years, and they still had another 20 years to go before it gets finished. The great irony is when they finally get it finished around 64, 65 AD, it's completely destroyed again by the Romans like five years later. So there you go. But it's 46 years in, and so, of course, they kind of scratch their heads and go, seriously, you're one guy. It's taken us 46 years to get this far. If we destroyed the whole thing, you can fix it in three days? And it was one of those that they couldn't, you know, test it to see if he was right. Let's, let's destroy it, guys. 
So they just kind of stare at him like, what in the world are you talking about? But as his disciples figure out, Jesus was not talking about that building. He was talking about his body. He was talking about the fact that, of course, he was going to die. And then three days later, rise from the dead. And I could just kind of picture as Jesus is talking to them and he's, he's flipped over these tables. He's angry. He's probably sweaty. He's probably breathing hard. You know, destroy this temple in three days. I'll, I'll rebuild it. He's looking at this entire temple complex, everything that these people are doing, everything that's going on. And he's saying, everything here is simply a prelude to me. I've arrived. You think of the Old Testament as, as God gave Moses the law. He gave him everything about building the temple, the Ark of the Covenant, the sacrificial system, the Passover, all of the laws, all of these things. What were they for? They were to point to the guy who's now standing in the temple. And he's saying, listen, you guys are so caught up in all of this and these sign things that you're looking for and in the money that you're making and you're missing me. I remember going to, we went to Baltimore a few years ago, and we went to the aquarium that was there. There was a bunch of school groups, and there was this one area where they had these big sharks. They're swimming through, and it's kind of dark, and they just kind of swim. And all of these kids were lined up, and every one of them, they were taking pictures with their phones of the shark. And then they would show their friends, look at the picture. And I kind of would scratch my head and go, you do know you could just look at the shark. It's right there. It's a lot bigger than your phone. But all of them are taking pictures and they're talking, you know, I can't get, just look at the shark. It's right there. But how many come to a worship service and we get caught up in all of the little details and we miss Christ? We worry if the songs aren't quite the way we want them to be. Or it's too hot or too cold. Or so-and-so sat in my seat. <laughs> or just the busyness of our lives. We can get caught up just like the Jews did in their religious traditions. They're going through the motions, doing the things that they've, they've always done. That when Jesus shows up and almost slaps them across the face, they just kind of, huh? I catch myself sometimes as a pastor. This is easy for me to do. I can get up on a Sunday and worry about, okay, is the music going to be right? Do we have the right order of stuff? Is there enough communion things? Are people going to got enough seats? Is the temperature going to be right? Blah, 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 blah. And I forget it's all kind of irrelevant unless people meet Jesus. Unless when they read, you know, when I read the word, do they hear him, not me. When we sing the songs, I was blessed. Just you could kind of tell the spirit of God was in the places we're singing. I was to be around so many people singing about King Jesus. We don't want to miss it. He, he's, he's talking to them. He's going to rise from the dead. He's promoting the gospel. He's saying, listen, this is at the end what it's all about. Now we go to the final little couple verses, the transition, 23, 24, and 25, where Jesus demonstrates his Messiahship through his perceiving of people. The feast was in Jerusalem. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. The reason why many people feel maybe this cleansing of the temple actually took place at the end. It talks about signs here, yet at the end of chapter 4, it talks about the second sign he performed. The, 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 the changing the water to wine was the first one. And so this kind of seems as a transitionary passage of John kind of explaining Jesus. But he's there in Jerusalem. He's doing things. He's, he's becoming famous. He's gathering people. People are following him. 
But it's interesting what John writes. Many believed in his name when they saw the sign he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. What that says in the Greek is the word entrust and belief is the same thing. Many believed in Jesus, but he didn't believe in their belief. He knew that it wasn't real. As you go through the Gospel of John, you see several passages where Jesus gets bigger and bigger followings, but he's not fooled into thinking they're actually following him. They like the things he's doing. They like the things he provides, but it's not really him. What it does show us here, because it does say they believed in his name, it shows us that false professions of faith are real, aren't they? I always get a little concerned sometimes when I'm at a church service and at the end there's an altar call or something like that and people come down and, and talk with the pastor or somebody for a minute and he immediately turns them around and announces to everybody, so-and-so is, is born again. They made a profession of faith, but I'm not Jesus. When it says there, he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus is not, he's beyond me. He can look at somebody and know something that I can't know. I know their life will demonstrate whether or not that profession of faith was real. I had a pastor once, he talked about this guy. He said, oh, it wasn't his prayer so pretty in the tears. I'm like, yeah, it's a beautiful prayer. Tears were nice. There's nothing biblical that says anything about that. But Jesus knew. That's how Jesus could know about Nathaniel in the end of chapter 1. He hadn't even met Nathaniel yet. Nathaniel shows up and he's like, before uh, you were, before Philip called you, I saw you under the fig tree. And he said, and Israel and indeed in whom there's no deceit. Jesus knew all about Nathaniel before he even met him. Jesus, you know, he knows what goes on in our hearts. He knows us. I can't do that. Neither can you. One of the things that we learn as we go through this is that our faith, as it becomes more evident, as we live it out, we begin to see as the Holy Spirit changes us, that's how we see, was it real? Did we truly get justified and convert? Did we truly meet Jesus? Easter Sunday is one of those Sundays where we have a lot of people here, don't we? A lot of them would say, well, you know, I know Jesus Christ, and this is my one Sunday to demonstrate that. I show up this week. That really frightens me. I have relatives in that boat, and I pray for them that it would be real. And so John, as he concludes here, the, the, the opening two chapters, and next week we shift to Nicodemus, to one of the most important sections of scripture unless a man be born again he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven it's just i didn't time that but it works out pretty well on easter sunday to have that be the sermon but we look at this introduction to jesus his messiahship and the the question that we're left with is this have you met him do you know him it's not just coming here because this is church and this is where I'm supposed to be on Sunday and we sing some nice songs. But do you experience the King of Kings when you see these words of the Holy Spirit convicting you and changing you? Are you, well, are you missing it like the Jews did or are you getting it like Nathaniel and Andrew and Philip and Peter did? So bow your heads with me. My prayer this morning is that you just take a few moments here before I close this and examine your life. Examine this week even. 
this morning even and say, when was the last time I experienced the presence of Christ in my life? We were so blessed by the Holy Spirit, I believe, this morning to really just experience when we were singing, being around brothers and sisters in Christ with hands raised and people praising the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. My prayer is that sticks with us throughout the week. That we wake up every day, not just in this large gathering with lots of people, but even in the quiet moments of our lives that we that we meet King Jesus. So just spend a moment before I close this in prayer and reflect on your life as it's been and say, do I know the King of Kings? Lord, as we go from here today, Lord, I pray that each person here has experienced you as they hear your word being read, as they read what you said so long ago, they see your passion for worshiping the King of Kings. Lord, that we would have that. Lord, that our devotion to you, our devotion to how you have commanded us to live trumps even our our closest relationships with people. Lord, that we wouldn't condemn people because of our niceness and not wanting to hurt their feelings. But Lord, that we would be honest and true as Jesus was there in the temple so long ago. And Lord, that we would live our lives in light of who he is and what he's done for us. Lord, I pray this morning for any that don't know you, Lord, that they would realize that you are judged, that they are a sinner, they need a savior, and to confess their sins and turn their life to you. Lord, I pray for our church this week. I pray for Good Friday service for the events on Saturday with the kids. And Lord, I pray for next Sunday. Lord, I pray for each of us as we come in contact with people that we would share your gospel, maybe invite them to church, Lord, to come and hear about King Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. 